Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. Jonathan Taplin has lived an interesting life, a former tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band, as well as a producer of two films by Martin Scorsese, Mean Streets and The Last Waltz. He's director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab. Next week, I'll talk with him about his new book, The End of Reality, how four billionaires are selling a fantasy future of the metaverse, Mars, and crypto. So how better to warm up for that than by replaying our 2018 conversation about his earlier book, Move Fast and Break Things, how Facebook, Google, and Amazon cornered culture and undermined democracy. You can learn more at johntaplin.com. J-O-N-T-A-P-L-I-N.com. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to another newly recorded episode of Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. And I'll be speaking today with Jonathan Taplin, Director Emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, uh, USC University, Southern California, and a former tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band, as well as the producer of films, including Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. We're going to talk about his latest book, Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. The show streams weekly on Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on iTunes, Podomatic.com, and at my site, TerrenceMcNally.net. So now to today's guest. Jonathan Taplin is Director Emeritus of USC's Annenberg Innovation Lab, uh, a role that he Uh, a lab that he directed for a number of years, looking just at that period as a lot of what now um, we are surrounded by was emerging. Um, And uh, he's an expert in digital media entertainment. He's a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. He sits on the California Broadband Task Force and Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's Council on Technology and Innovation. And uh, he previously wrote and produced the enhanced ebook Outlaw Blues, Adventures in the Counterculture Wars. And we are recording this interview on May 2nd. Welcome, Jonathan Taplin, to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Good to be here, Terrence. So um, I like uh, listeners to get a feel for the people behind the work and the ideas that we talk about. Now, I briefly hit a few highlights of your bio, but um, could you briefly talk about your path, uh, because it's, it's a fascinating path, um, and, uh, you know, a n- number of twists and turns in different directions, but tell people how you got to the kind of stuff you're doing today, and, you know, mention mentors, turning points, moments of decision, that sort of thing. Sure. So, I, I guess my mature life began in 1965. I was 18. I was about to go to Princeton, and I went to the Newport Folk Festival, and I met a man named Albert Grossman, who was the most important manager of folk music talent in the world. Um, and he put me to work for a band called the Jim Queskin Jug Band, which was a, a folk group quite popular in, in the 60s, uh, as a road manager. Uh, but I also happened to be there when... Albert's client, Bob Dylan, decided to go electric on stage, and this caused a great uproar among the folkies. But for me, it was a very transformative moment, and I kind of committed to following the road that Dylan was on. And so while I was at Princeton, I would work on the weekends as a road manager for Grossman, for Janis Joplin, for eventually for the band and then for the band and Bob Dylan. And then when I graduated, I moved to Woodstock and worked there until 1973 as a tour manager for Dylan and the band. And and, and then I did the concert for Bangladesh for George Harrison. And then after that, I came out to California to explore the movie business and met a young film editor named Marty Scorsese <laughs> who had edited Woodstock. And I, I was so naive, I didn't know you weren't supposed to put your own money into making movies. And with some friends, I put up the money for a movie called Mean Streets, and that turned out to be a good movie. <laughs> and uh, so from there, I, I continued to make movies and made, uh, you know, 
The Last Waltz with Marty and the band. I made a movie called Under Fire about the Nicaraguan Revolution, uh, To Die For with Gus Van Sant. And so I made a lot of movies. I took a kind of detour in the mid-'80s to work with the Bass Brothers uh, to help reform Walt Disney Company uh, and went to work for their investment banker, Merrill Lynch Investment Banking. And so I, I ran the mergers and acquisition group for media for about four years. Didn't really like that work very much and then went back to work in the 90s with a German director named Wim Wenders and made a movie called Until the End of the World. Um, made a movie called Shine. Uh, got into a fight with Harvey Weinstein and in <laughs> Sundance Film Festival in 1995. He tried to strangle me in public for not selling him the movie. Uh, and then started the first streaming video on demand company in 1996 called Entertainer. Raised a lot of money from Microsoft, Intel, NBC, Sony. Ran that company for uh, seven years. And eventually, the major studios, which had been licensing us content, um, decided that they were going to do exactly what we were doing <laughs> themselves and stop licensing us content. So we had to shut down the site. I sued them all in federal antitrust court, all the major studios for antitrust violations. So I couldn't go back to being a movie No, producer. no. <laughs> So I went to uh, USC to start teaching. And then I won the antitrust suit so I could afford to stay a professor. And then uh, about seven years ago started the Annenberg Innovation Lab. And ironically, a lot of the companies that I had sued and won the money from became sponsors of the lab. Um, and then, uh, you know, out of all those experiences, I began to think a lot about Internet monopoly and, you know, both in the sense of how it had changed the music business. And obviously, as you know, I cite in the early part of the book the story of Lee Von Helm, who was the drummer in the band, made a really decent living from record royalties, even though the band stopped recording in 1979 the money kept flowing because people got CDs in the 80s. They renewed their record collection. And and then in the year 2000, Napster arrived, mm -hmm. and the money just stopped from record royalties. And in the year 2000, Levon got throat cancer. And he literally didn't have enough money to pay for his health care. And that seemed to me deeply unfair. And in the 2000s, I could go on YouTube and see songs of the band like The Wade or The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down with 3 million, 4 million streams. And yet not a single penny of that money was coming to the musicians. And so that's how I began looking at what had happened and how the Internet monopolies had kind of taken all the value. And that leads you to sit down and write this book. Yeah, so I sit down and write the book, and as I begin to write the book, I begin to realize it's more than just musicians or journalists who are getting screwed. It's that the general society is getting distorted by the monopoly power of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and that they're actually changing the whole nature of our democracy. And um, that was the real revelation, you know. And obviously the book was written, book came out a year ago, so it was written really mostly before the election. There are some parts about what I discovered after the election, but uh, clearly, you know, every week... Yeah. Since the book came out, there's been more and more um, revelations of of just how deeply embedded these social networks were in our political schematic. 
Yeah. So, Jonathan, I, I um, did an interview with you almost exactly a year ago. I looked it up. It was April 24th, 2017 for Live Talks LA. And uh, we, even then, uh, what we know now, we only knew pieces of and so on. So it's been, it's been fascinating. You basically knew there was trouble here. You put undermining democracy in the subtitle. And yet you can only begin to kind of look and say, you know, this looks like trouble, this looks like trouble. And then, of course, what we've seen in the year since the book came out uh, is many, many revelations to the point where some of the things which I I looked back at that interview, some of the things that we were talking about a year ago uh, as sort of revelations to people now, I think, have become more uh, more understood, you know, because events have made people sit up and take notice. But – in your book, I think, lays the foundation um, for what we now have discovered is happening with Cambridge Analytica, with bots, with Russians, with Macedonian teenagers, with, with the, the fact that, that not only was there enormous influence uh, on the 2016 election, but with Trump in the White House, we have not done nearly enough to make sure it doesn't happen again in 2018. We will talk about that. But first, let's, let's go back to what what you knew when you were writing the book, and, and as I say, which establishes the foundation of what's uh, what we've learned since then. And you tell right. the story of the development of the internet and online technologies, yeah. and the original vision was something far different from what we see today. Could you talk about the early days? Yeah, so if you think about the late 1960s, people like Tim Berners-Lee, John Seeley Brown, um, a lot of the people that worked on the original internet were quite frankly utopian and countercultural uh, Stuart Brand and um, Ken Kesey uh, these people wanted more than anything to decentralize the media system and you and I are both old enough to remember that in 1968 there were three television networks and probably one newspaper in any given city, and that was the media. It was very centralized. So the idea of creating a decentralized network was, um, you know, a very important thing, the idea that anybody could talk to anybody else. And beyond that, you know, obviously the money to do that came from the Defense Department, and they had their own reasons for wanting a decentralized network which was that if the Soviet Union bombed Los Angeles, the network would root around the disaster and stay up. Um, So those two ideas, the money and the the kind of hippie countercultural people that built things like the whole electronic link, um, were the core of it. But what happened was that 20 years later, the network's grown to the point that these people who were coming out of Stanford and Princeton and other places like Jeff Bezos, like Peter Thiel, like Larry Page, who runs Google, had a very different point of view. And they realized that the economics of scale, what has been known as Metcalfe's Law, which was that the value of a network is equal to the square of the number of users. So that whoever got to the largest number of users fast would be on an exponential curve. I mean, the uh, notion that Facebook could go from zero to 2.3 billion users in under 10 years is pretty astonishing. So they understood that the internet could be a winner-takes-all business. It just so happens that they all had a basically libertarian philosophy of life. They had all been schooled in the work of Ayn Rand. And if you know Ayn Rand, you know that, you know, the entrepreneur is always brought down by democracy. You know, the, the stupid mob, what, what Rand called the demos, is getting in the way. So Peter, people like Peter Thiel say, I no longer believe that democracy and capitalism are compatible. 
So what they were interested in was a very different kind of capitalism. So let me let me cut in for a second here. Um, what you just said is that the, the, the sort of the second generation of leaders in the tech industry, um, a lot from Stanford and a lot with uh, Libertarian and Rand. What seemed to be the connection there? You know, what was the chicken? What was the egg? How, how did that shift? In other words, there was a particular worldview of that first generation, and it seems a very different one of the second. What have you sussed out led well, so many of those folks to be libertarian or so many of the libertarians to jump on tech? Well, the, the, the whole idea was that this was a new world. You know, there's a very famous speech by John Perry Barlow, which was the Declaration of Independence of Cyberspace. And the whole notion was, leave us alone. We're going to invent this thing, and government regulation should have nothing to do with it. And so Peter Thiel had these kind of four ideas. And for your listeners, Peter Thiel was obviously the founder of PayPal, but he also was the first major investor in Facebook. And he believed that if you were going to have a, a winner-takes-all business, so the opposite of Stuart Brand's idea of decentralization, you would have a very centralized network, um, then you would need four things. You would need no regulation from government. You would need a, a world where there were no taxes. So Amazon was able to sell books, with no sales taxes, and put 4,000 independent bookstores out of business. You would need a world of no copyrights, so that anything that you produced, Terrence, could be put up on YouTube by any user, and you know maybe even they could get advertising off it, and you would not have any benefit of that. And you couldn't prevent it from being up there. You could file a takedown notice, but it would go back up the next day. And for a musician, that was, of course, disastrous. Mm -hmm. um, and then, finally, that there would be no competition. As Peter Thiel said, competition is for losers. If you want to build real value, you have to build a monopoly. And so what happened was we got, obviously, Google is a monopoly. It has 90% market share of the search advertising business. Obviously, in the books business and soon in many other sectors, Amazon is a monopoly. Amazon controls 75% of the books business. And in social media, Facebook and its associated companies that it owns, like Instagram and WhatsApp, are a monopoly. They control about 75% of the mobile social traffic in the world. So out of that monopoly power came a completely different web. It wasn't a decentralized web at all. It was an that's, incredibly centralized web. That's right. In which three companies basically took most of the value. And so that's, that's Facebook in uh, social media, Google in search, and uh, Amazon, and in, Amazon e in retail. And, yeah. and, and then with all that phenomenal wealth that they're accumulating, they then begin to branch out into, you know, Google has all its many uh, things and so on. But basically, search, communicating with, with others, and buying things locked up by three companies. Exactly. And, and by the way, these three companies are three of the five largest corporations in the world. Ten years ago, the largest corporations in the world were ExxonMobil, and British Petroleum. Today, it's Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft. So, I mean, the, the rise of tech to dominate the economy is a relatively recent phenomenon, but it's, it's only going to get more so because, needless to say, the profit margins that Google can get are so out outrageous compared to any other corporation, because unlike, say, CBS, which has to pay millions of dollars to make programming, but really just to sell advertising, 
Google doesn't have to pay anything to sell advertising. Yeah. It just it just takes it on top of anybody else's content, whether it's on YouTube or on on search. And the same is true for Facebook. Facebook doesn't make a product. The product Facebook makes is your very detailed psychological advertising profile that it then sells to marketers. Okay, let's talk about that because that actually is the is the, the the piece that really makes the internet and Facebook uh, so vulnerable and attractive to the kind of meddling that we now see in our politics. Uh, a statement that you sort of circled around, but I'm going to state it specifically, is you write, and this is now something when I was looking at, at last year's interview, I realized this is something which was new to a lot of people last year, and I think a lot more people have at least an inkling of now, which is that if the service is free, you are the product. Explain. Well, you know, when I do college talks, I say to the kids, look, you're, each of you are working between an hour and two hours a day for free for Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> You're manufacturing his product because the only product he has is his ability to sell your profile to a marketer. ProPublica you know, revealed that Facebook has 552 different buckets that an advertiser can buy in, and those buckets might be uh, women in, you know, who drive trucks and drink bourbon and listen to Johnny Cash. You know, I mean, they could be that specific. Yeah, yeah that granular. Yeah. So um, the point is that these companies have only one thing, which is the the content that users generate to put on the site, which then gets up their friends and other people to come on the site, which then gets them to see advertising. And of course, the advertising is all based upon your emotional state. I mean, Facebook has gone so far as to prove that it can change your emotional state. If it changes your newsfeed to more depressing stuff, it can actually change how you psychologically feel and how you post to other people. Whether you're angry, it makes you, it can make you more angry. And of course, these were the kinds of things that people like Steve Bannon understood that Facebook could actually have enough of a psychological profile of you that he could then know who were the people who were most easily targeted to get upset about a caravan of people mm -hmm. coming up from Mexico to yeah. the border, yeah. right? Yeah. And he could target just those people, and he could often use words that they'd use themselves and repackage that in the thing and as if they're saying, wow, Donald Trump thinks exactly like I think, you know? Mm -hmm. well, of course I mean, he does. They could literally yes. scrape. <laughs> yep words that you've written to another one of your friends online and then put that into some customized ad just for you to get you riled up. Yeah. And that, and, and, and when you say that you, uh, you mean that literally, in other words, because it's done by algorithms, because no human hands ever have to touch this stuff, you can actually, uh, that campaign was able to put out I think hundreds and thousands of versions of the right. same basic message. Exactly. And then test it in real time immediately and and so on. And 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 one other thing that, that you implied there is that not only does this psychological profile make them know what, as you're saying, make them know what to put in front of your eyes, but that they it, they can take it that one step further, which is that knowing your psychological profile and watching it in real time, um, they can put what appeals to you and push you in a direction. Absolutely. And, and you know, in, in terms of marketing consumer goods, they've at least made the case to advertisers that this is really effective. If one of your female listeners is on Facebook and is expressing depression or is, is writing 
oh, I've had such a horrible day and to their friends, that may be the exact perfect time to push that ad for that new pair of shoes that you knew that she looked at two weeks ago but didn't buy. Oh, my God, right. And, and bang, it's at that emotionally vulnerable state where maybe that pair of shoes might make you feel better because you're feeling so shitty right now uh, that, you know, you, you, you pick up on it that you didn't pick up on it two weeks ago. Yeah. So so that thing where we see them immediately, right? In other words, we search for something and suddenly ads that that search uh, totally. told them that happens. But now you're saying also by by watching our emotional state in our sharing, they can actually go, oh, it, we got it there immediately. She didn't buy. Now's the time. And by the way, yeah. just to say the same thing would be true of a guy, right? Totally. <laughs> it might, it's the perfect time totally. to get. Tell him about a new kind of booze or a new kind of beer. Yeah, or, or, or some sneakers he didn't buy. Yep, yep. You know, I mean, look, the, their belief that their understanding of your psychological profile, whether you're neurotic or you're, you know, wh- whatever your emotional state, are you overconfident or are you underconfident? And, 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 you know, so the point here is that, the business they're in is what I call surveillance capitalism. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they are constantly watching you and not content enough just to have your smartphone as to be the device to do it. Now, Google and Amazon and uh, Facebook delayed their device are putting what they call smart speakers into your home. So that's like the Alexa or the Google Home. These aren't really smart speakers. They're smart microphones. And they're always on, and they're listening for keywords in what you happen to say to your wife about, oh, God, I'd really like to, I'm so tired, I'd love to take a vacation. And bang, the next thing you know, you've got ads for vacations flooding your Google you know, search page. So now, I mean, wait. I want is... to. I want to slow down for that one. Okay. So, Jonathan, okay. what you what you just said? Am I right? You're saying that unless you actively shut it off, it is on and it is listening, whether you're talking all, to all it or time. not. It's just. I was sitting... at Vanderbilt two weeks ago, and I gave a speech and talked about this. And this student came up to me. He said. Oh, now everything makes sense now. He said, (laughs) I have in my kitchen a Google Home. And this is one of these smart speaker cones. And he said, my girlfriend walked into my kitchen and I said, oh, I really like your new glasses. Within a half hour, he said, I was getting advertisements from Google for glasses. And he says, I don't wear glasses. (laughs) So I don't know, you know, why they thought I would be a good customer, but just the very fact that that happened, then Warby Parker is advertising to me, like, within 20 minutes. Okay, and what about the cameras in our computers and our smart TVs? you know, obviously that's the next version of the Alexa has a camera (laughs) in it. And it's supposed to help you get the perfect clothing. Right, because one of the things Amazon is going into is the customized clothing business. So you kind of stand in front of the camera and the facial recognition, everything, and then it'll start suggesting clothes for you and everything. I, you know, to me, it's just deeper levels of surveillance. Yeah. You know, and and the strange thing is, is that there is there is a real endpoint to where this all goes. Um, So Alibaba, which is one of the two largest Chinese technology companies, has built an application called Sesame Social Credit. So what Sesame Social Credit is, is it takes your credit score and overlays on top of it an artificial intelligence-mediated review of everything you do online and offline. So, Terrence, if you played video games for seven hours last Saturday, 
your social credit score would go down because you're considered a slacker. If I wrote something critical of the Chinese government on WeChat, my social credit score would go down because I'm considered unpatriotic. If my wife crossed the street in Shanghai in the middle of the block jaywalking and was caught on CCTV cameras with facial recognition, her social credit score would go down because she's considered a lawbreaker. Now, who, who cares about this social credit score? 210 million Chinese have signed up for this system. They, wait, you voluntarily do it? Yes. And why do you do it? Well, for young men, they put their social credit score on their dating app oh to prove that they're patriotic, marriageable men who won't get in trouble with the government. Because, and, as you know, the ratio of men to women say, yeah. in the millennial age in China is about four to one. So the competition is fierce. And so you have to prove that you're going to move up in the world, and the way you move up in the world is having a high social credit score. Here's the really weird part, is two weeks ago it was reported that certain people have been banned from getting on airplanes because their social credit score is too low. Xi Jinping has suggested that every Chinese citizen should get on this system. Now, the fact is, I'm guessing that if the Chinese government wanted to, everyone could be on this system whether they volunteered or not and whether they know it or not. That's probably true. (laughs) So it's nice of them to ask, but I can't imagine they need to. Right. You know, it's funny. When I gave a talk at USC a few weeks ago, you know, one of the students said, well, that's China. That could never happen in America. And there was a, as you know, at USC, there's some professors who are in their 80s. And one of them got up and said to the student, he said, I just want you to know that when I first applied for a job in the 50s to teach school, the local school administrator checked my library card records. <laughs> had he, had he been looking at Pinko stuff? Yeah. Trying to apply to teach school. Wow. Right. So we don't, we're not completely uh, immune from using your history to determine your employment. Yeah. As, as anybody who applied for a job knows, now they go to your social media history. And of course, if you're trying to get a visa to come into America, you now have to turn over your social media history. I mean, even more than that, isn't it? Isn't it, if you're even if you're yeah, even if you're visiting here. Well, that's right. So, so a visa. If you're visiting here, that's part of what you have to supply to get in, right? Yeah. Yeah, which is wild. So let me tell people this is free forum, a world that just might work. I'm Terrence McNally. I'm speaking with Jonathan Taplin. He's the director emeritus of the USC Annenberg Innovation Lab, former tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band, and the producer of uh, many films, including uh, his first was Mean Streets. And we're talking about his uh, book, Move Fast and Break Things, how Facebook, Google, and Amazon cornered culture and undermined democracy. And you can learn more at johntaplin.com, and that's J-O-N-T-A-P-L-I-N.com. Hello, I'm Terrence McNally. You're listening to my 2018 conversation with next week's guest, Jonathan Taplin, about his book, Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. You can learn more at johntaplin.com, J-O-N-T-A-P-L-I-N.com. Um, it sounds to me like, uh, I, wait, I'm just trying to visualize sort of. So all of this is going on. The big tech companies are, are you know, innovating left and right to get more and more information about you and use it to more and more for their bottom line or people for whom they sell that information's bottom line. Um, and we're, we're sort of at, aren't we at some sort of a, a, you know, an inflection point or something where uh, either it's getting so complete 
or the awareness is growing because it seems to me it seems to me that the election and the tampering with the election actually sort of shined a light on what had been going on that people hadn't been paying attention to. Your book was one of those that said, wait a minute, this is what's going on. There were a few others that came out as, as well. But do you agree that sort of something has happened where there's more awareness and suddenly people are, you know, are having to, to maybe think about something they've been ignoring? I agree totally. And I, I actually think the last four weeks have been a kind of sea change. The very fact that Mark Zuckerberg was forced to show up in front of Congress, despite the fact that I thought that at least the senators were woefully unprepared. Oh, my God. To ask him any questions. I mean, that Orrin Hatch had to be told that they make their money off of advertising was embarrassing. Yeah. But but the main point is that at least you have someone like Lindsey Graham saying to him, look, if I don't like a Ford, I can buy a Chevrolet. If I don't like Facebook, do I have any other choice? Which was essentially a way of saying you're a monopoly. Yeah. Which, of course, he was. Because if, if Zuckerberg had said, yeah, you can always go to Instagram, <laughs> but he owns Instagram. You right, know? Right. So, I mean, the point is that at least there's a beginning awareness. And so, you know, in Europe, next well, this month, later this month, they're going to put in place something called GDPR, which is General Data Privacy Regulations, which essentially will make it possible for me to use Facebook without letting Facebook have any of my data other than my name, my age, my sex, and where, where I, my house is. Um, and I can actually force them to purge my data that they had before so I can have a kind of clean slate with Facebook with nothing in their data cache. So in other words, if I want to do business in the EU, I got to abide by those rules as of, as of now or very soon. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that says to me that that's different. And obviously then look, Facebook can still sell ads knowing that I'm male and I'm, you know, I'm older than 60, you know, so maybe they can still target me that way, but they're not going to target me based on what my religious leanings are or my political leanings are or the fact that they know that I went to this restaurant last week and, you know, didn't like the book. You know, Wait a I sec, mean, but tell me how that works. In other words, Facebook, if I go to that restaurant and I take a picture and I share something, yeah. Facebook knows I went there. They may even know what I ordered and so on. Is in the EU, they have to, they can't use that? I mean, they can't use that to advertise. To wow. Me. How is that even phrased? I mean, what, what, what? You well, I mean, the basic thing is that you have the right to be forgotten. Uh -huh. you, have the, you have the right to have no, um, you know, your data not to be collected. So, in other words, you, you have the right not to leave breadcrumbs, right? Right. <laughs> and, exactly. And, and now, see, what's interesting is I hadn't realized that the, the, the right to be forgotten um, was that broad. I thought the right to be forgotten was if there's something embarrassing that I want taken out of my data, I can proactively go, no, no, you know, you're saying no, that basically uh, the the data that I'm putting out is disappears in effect for, yes. for, for as I far as Facebook. I can ask Facebook or Google to purge all of the data they have on me. And to purge it continually. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and now, not collect new data. And so let me ask, because I've often wondered, we all sign the I agree box, right? We all right. check the I agree box to terms and conditions every time they come up with some new invasive way to get in our life. Yeah. We agree to it. So in and I was curious, what do we do? How do you simplify that? And what you're saying is they've just shifted the the model completely in the EU, where 
the onus is on them to ask for permission because starting exactly. starting in other words the default position now becomes opt out and now they're going to all have to ask you to opt in now of course they're going to try in as many confusing ways as possible to get you to opt in yep so for instance the new issue of wired magazine shows some screenshots that facebook has prepared for this to get you to say yes. And the funny thing is, they're all like big buttons for I agree everywhere. And down in the tiny, (laughs) almost grayed out, tiny little type at the bottom, it says, see other options. (laughs) (laughs) So they're going to try and get you just to keep doing things as, as, you know, usual, business as usual. But you do, for the first time, have other options. And so what this also says is this is possible. In other words... Of course it's possible. I mean, I'm saying this whole shift... They're going to try and subvert this as much as possible uh, because obviously the value to Facebook of a customer to whom they have no more data than your age and your sex is probably a lot lower than the value of a customer in which they have 540 different categories of information on you. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, because the, the, their sale of that information is 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 much less valuable. Yes. Um, interesting. So, in other words, this could it's being done in the EU. It could, now now China is even more extreme. They censor and all of that, but the U.S. Right. could go the EU way. And yeah. and what's I mean you you probably are in touch with the community. What's going on in terms of the good guys and and the tech giants in terms of saying if they we'd like it to be like the EU here in the U.S. Or is well, there a movement? There is some conversation that it may be very hard for these companies to have two different privacy regimes, because let's say I'm an EU citizen and I come on a business trip to the United States, can Facebook all of a sudden begin to collect data on me in the U.S.? Well, no. Right. I mean, according to the EU, no. I, I'm, I have, can take my privacy with me. Mm-hmm. In other words, my privacy becomes almost a form of property that can't be violated wherever I go. So it may be just in the same way that, you know, if California wins on the clean car law, that that becomes the de facto standard for the United States, even if Trump hates it, you know, because, you know, Chevrolet is not going to make two versions of the car, one for California and all the, 2010 states that are allied with them on our clean car law, and then another set for, you know, Mississippi and Alabama and Texas. Right. Much as as they might like to, it just doesn't make sense. Now, it seems to me that the manufacture of an automobile is a, uh, you know, is of a different nature than the uh, use of an algorithm. But you're saying it still may, that the analogy may hold. Yeah, it's it's it could just be too complicated and not worth the extra money that they would not get. Not worth in the, the extra money to to run two completely different privacy schemes. Right now, let me ask you this: they aren't they running two privacy schemes now for those people who don't agree to terms, or those who do, or basically, if you don't agree to terms, you're out of the game. Exactly. If you don't. You can't be on Facebook in the United States if you don't agree to their terms of service. Yeah, I got it. I got it. So, okay. Now, one thing, we've got about um, 13 minutes left. I want to do two things in that time. And, and this has been great so far, uh, fleshing out a lot of what I'm sure people are kind of imagining or thinking about or worrying about. One is I do want you to be able to make a, a point that is very much one of the central points of your book, which is not political, which is about artists' rights. So take a minute and tell us what the, quote, crime is now and what the solution might be. 
think about the music business. For many years, an artist would put out a record and earn a particular portion of the sales of that record as what is known as a royalty. Okay, so now the record business as such is essentially dead, right? Hardly anybody buys CDs anymore. Even the download of content from iTunes is a dying business compared to the streaming business. So what happened was that the the revenues to the music business since Napster have fallen by about 75%, which is disastrous, right? But here's the problem. It could be that there is a great music business in the future, which is that if, say, you know, the estimates are that by the end of next year, there will be 5 billion smartphones in the world, right? So even if 1 billion of those people had a Apple Music account, right, that paid $10 a month for access to all the music in the world, that would be more money than the record business has ever seen ever in the history of its existence. Hmm. The problem is that's not happening because every tune in the world is available for free on YouTube. YouTube says to the music business, your content is going to be on here whether you want it to or not. So why don't you just sign this little what they call license and we'll stick an ad on your content when Joe Smith uploads your song to the Internet, to YouTube. We'll stick an ad on it and we'll give you the revenue. The problem is... The revenue is so little from those ads. So, for instance, if you had a song that had a million downloads on iTunes, you could make $900,000. Okay. If you had a million streams on YouTube, you would make $900. Oh, my God. I mean, that's not enough to pay the rent. Well, and also, you're talking a million, Angeles, so, but the know? person... And that's a hit. Yeah, that's a hit. A that's what I'm saying. The person who gets a hundred thousand downloads, which back in the old days, a hundred thousand people want to hear my music, I'm 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 gonna make a living. Now it's peanuts. Yeah. So the point is, as long as YouTube is out there, and the reason YouTube can get away with this is that there was a law passed under the Clinton administration called Safe Harbor. It yes. was part of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And essentially it said that companies such as Google, YouTube, Facebook have no responsibility for the content that their users post. Got it. Well, first off, that's nonsense. Yeah. They do take a lot of responsibility. For instance, you notice on YouTube there's no pornography. Well, that's because they spend millions of dollars a year on artificial intelligence, that when people are uploading porn to YouTube, and I promise you there are a lot of people uploading porn to YouTube, it filters it out. It sees a bare breast, and it shunts it into a, a separate queue, and then a human looks at it, and if for some reason it was a National Geographic film, right, maybe right, they'll right. let it up there, but generally they just put it in the trash. So... The point being is... They've got the capacity. YouTube, yeah. YouTube basically is killing the music business. And let me, let me just go back one second for people who, who yeah. might have missed it. The trick with the safe harbor, even though, as you point out, it was passed before um, these things were juggernauts, is that if I, YouTube, put up a song, I would have to have an, a licensing agreement. But if, exactly. if a user puts up a song on YouTube, I don't. Right. Yeah. So so when Spotify puts up content, even if it's in their free ad-supported service, they're paying a, a license fee to the, the content owner for every stream, right? Yeah. And it's significant. 
it's it's not as good on their as on their um you know premium right, service right, right, where right. people are paying ten dollars a month, but it's significant. But YouTube is is basically screwing up the whole business. Yeah. What can folks do? If we can't get out that changed, then you're in trouble. So the first chink in this armor of safe harbor was a law that was passed two weeks ago called SESTA, which basically essentially said that if if Google pushed you, guided you to a child sex trafficking site, then you could hold Google responsible for that. In other words, Google couldn't hide behind Safe Harbor for that. Okay. And of course, there was a notorious site called Backpages that was just basically running child sex trafficking business. And essentially, they were able to put them out of business. So, I mean, that was the first change in the safe harbor law. I think, you know, we need to look at ways to look at that because YouTube is essentially, you know, the the cover of Business Week this week was a garbage dump with the name YouTube on the front of it. And it's not just the music business. It's the fact that there were 44,000 ISIS videos on YouTube when I first started researching my book. You know, YouTube's response when I would ask them about it is, well, it's free speech. Is it free speech to put up beheading videos or training videos or how to create jihad? I don't know. You know, it's a private company. They ought to have some terms of service. Yeah. <laughs> and it was only when advertisers like Procter & Gamble discovered that they had ads on the front of these ISIS videos yep. that YouTube began to do something about yep. So, so, so this is a big problem, and it's going to take organizing and pressure. And the the the, the problem uh, in in terms of that is that it doesn't matter apparently to enough people that it you know that it become. I mean, we're having a hard enough time fighting for net neutrality, right? Right. So, look, it's beginning to change. I mean, I, I think the other thing that we ought to think about is is the effect that Facebook has on the journalism business. I mean, you think about the fact that, you know, newspaper advertising revenues have fallen even more than music revenues. Wow. They've fallen by about 80% since Google was invented. So here's the problem. If Facebook is creating all the value in terms of advertising revenue is going to Facebook and it's not going to the newspaper article that is pushed on Facebook, um, that's a real problem. And quite frankly, Facebook is not going to be in the local news business. Facebook is not going to pay for a reporter to go down to City Hall and find the corruption. And I've been on a book tour for almost a year now, and I promise you, when you go to the Nashville Tennessean, they're hanging on by their fingernails. There's almost no no revenue there. Or the New Orleans Times Picayune comes out once a week. Oh my god. You know, it's yeah. it's the the local newspaper business has been decimated by Facebook. Right. So on one hand, we're saying the music business, we like to support artists, is in trouble. That's a terrible thing. But when the news business is in trouble, that is one of the threats to democracy. Totally. To the founders, um, a free press was not just because they liked the idea of freedom. It was that the press was an essential piece of democracy. Yes, exactly. So um, this is, you know, this has been fascinating and, and, and we've covered a lot. With the, let's jump just now, I'll give you two minutes. What can be done about the uh, meddling in the election between now and, 20, and the midterms? Well, look, I, I think that I actually believe that Zuckerberg is right in the sense that if he had enough human curators and enough application of artificial intelligence, he could discern 80% 
of the fake news, propaganda, meddling. He could probably root out the millions of fake accounts that are up on Facebook that are being used to um, serve up propaganda. Um, I mean, with a big enough application of that, I think something could be done. I think that the bill that Mark Warner and, and Amy Klobuchar are trying to push through, which is this Honest Ads Act, if it's really detailed, would be useful. In other words, you couldn't put a political ad on social media without not just identifying who's the, the group paying for it, like Americans for good economy, but right. you'd have to disclose who paid for, who put the money into Americans for the good economy so that we could eventually get back to, okay, the Koch brothers paid for this or the Mercers paid for this. So similar to, what we, to the laws that we have passed in the state of California, we're now on propositions and proposition ads and proposition flyers. They have to identify the funders. This is a yeah. similar kind of thing, only this would be online. Exactly. So that would be a help. Obviously, as we've discussed, having um, better privacy regulation in America that looks somewhat like the European GDPR would be a help. And then I think ultimately this dealing with a safe harbor, because if these companies have to take responsibility for what's on their sites, then they do a lot better job. Uh, you know, if they actually had some liability for publishing, you know, the Pope endorsed Donald right, Trump, right, right? Right. I mean, that's, you know, that's just kind of nonsense that anybody would know that wasn't true, except the partisans who want to believe anything. Right. So, so in other words, if they were in the position of having some sort of perhaps defamation li- liability or something yeah. for what goes on, then they'd, 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 they'd be more responsible if they were held yeah, responsible. Yeah, well, all you have to yeah. do is remove the safe harbor. Yep. Then they'd yep. be treated like any other media outlet, any radio station, any uh, you know newspaper, any broadcasting station, and, and they'd have to be responsible. Okay, we got to bring the conversation to a close, and I don't think enough of that is going to happen between now and November. But uh, we'll, you know, if we have this conversation uh, after the election, we'll we'll see. That uh, would be great. Yeah, what happened here? The, the website to learn more about John's work is johntaplin.com. That's J-O-N-T-A-P-L-I-N.com. The book is uh, "Move Fast and Break Things," which is a quote from uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg about how Facebook operates, and the subtitle "How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Carnage Culture and Undermine Democracy." For this conversation and many other interviews, articles, transcripts of interviews, and join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to terrencemcnally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. They're the same website. If you want to get a weekly email announcement telling you who we're going to be talking to and usually six, seven, eight articles relevant to, to the issue, uh, sign up at my site or email me at temcnally at mac.com. Uh, you can also subscribe and listen to the Freeform podcast on iTunes and Podomatic.com. You can find years of podcasts at my site. I mean, like the last eight or nine years. Um, that's that site, terrencemcnally.net, or uh, they're also at iTunes. Um, just go for the Terrence McNally uh, uh, slot on iTunes and listen anytime, anywhere. Thanks to G, my engineer, Teddy, who helped out today, Mark Maxwell in production, George Vasilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners, please uh, share this podcast widely. Uh, Thank you, Jonathan Taplin, and keep up your good work. My pleasure. Hi, it's radio veteran Nicole Sandler. Sadly, the radio we all grew up listening to and the industry in which I worked for 40 years has been decimated. Thanks to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, a handful of giant corporations control what you hear on the so-called public airwaves all across the nation. But times have changed. Turn it up! Turn it up!
the 21st century and at Progressive Voices, we're reclaiming our time. Progressive Voices, now powered by TuneIn, speaking truth to power 24-7 on the Progressive Voices Network.